I'm your host, Alexander Hefner, and you're listening to the audio podcast of The Open Mind. I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. In 1957, we introduced the American people to a then little-known civil rights leader, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who had just returned from the Montgomery bus boycott. Along his side was Judge J. Waitis Waring of South Carolina, U.S. District Judge for the Eastern District. On the bench, Waring was a forceful defender of equality. His decisions laid the groundwork for desegregation as law, Brown v. Board of Education, and a constitution capable of protecting the enfranchisement and emancipation of all people. Sixty-two years after that broadcast, the native South Carolinian U.S. Circuit judge who presides in Waring's seat has discovered with great historical insight the horrible crime that stimulated the judge's commitment to civil rights. In his new book, Unexampled Courage, The Blinding of Sergeant Isaac Woodard and the Awakening of Harry S. Truman in J. Wedis Waring, Judge Richard Gergel has penned a moving account of the judge, his conversion from apathetic to the moral conscience of Southern jurisprudence. Welcome, Judge. Great to be here. Thank you. Watching that interview, which I know you did recently, Waits Wearing here on The Open Mind, 1957, what most came to mind to you about his fundamental character? Well, first of all, it is a historic interview for a number of reasons. It's Dr. King's first national broadcast. And it is the only, to my knowledge, only surviving video of Judge Waring. Judge Waring had retired as a United States District Judge in Charleston in 1952 and had moved to New York. So this was five years after his retirement. He is 50 years older than Dr. King. And the host, who by remarkable coincidence, it was your <laughs> grandfather, Richard Hefner, who uh, uh, conducted this interview, um, engaged the two in what was really a remarkable and sparkling discussion about the necessity of both civic activism as well as judicial activism to undo the Gordian knot of Jim Crow. And it um, it is a remarkable interview by your grandfather, and it is a remarkable display of the emerging philosophies of Dr. King. They are so articulate. They both are so precise uh, and, and courageous. Um, when did the judge discover first the incident that occurred, um, the blinding um, of this sergeant who nobly um, served in the military for our country? Well, let me give a little background because yeah. uh, in, in February of 1946, uh, Isaac Woodard, like 900,000 other African-American veterans, uh, were discharged from the United States Army after the end of World War II and were returning home, 75% to the, to the states of the old Confederacy. Now, they believed that they would get a better deal now that they had served their country and fought and defended American liberty. But nothing had changed at home. The uh, home front was still um, locked into the rigid um, uh, uh, life of Jim Crow, black disenfranchisement, racial segregation, lack of economic opportunity. And there was a natural clash that was going to occur. And that happened not just with uh, Sergeant Isaac Woodard, but with many others. The event with Sergeant Woodard was literally on the day of his discharge. He was 
um, returning to his home in Winsboro, South Carolina by bus on a Greyhound bus. And in the midst of a transportation through rural South Carolina, he and the bus driver got into an argument. And when he arrived in Batesburg... And he wanted he, to use the He wanted to use the restroom, and, he, and the um, bus driver spoke to him disrespectfully, and he re retorted back, speak to me like I'm a man, I'm a man just like you. The next stop, the bus driver has him arrested, removed from the bus. And there, the police chief of Batesburg, South Carolina, Linwood Shaw, beats and blinds Woodard while he is in custody. That story comes to the attention of President Truman, who had a really soft spot for men in uniform. He had been, of course, a World War I um, uh, commander himself. He was a captain of a battery. And he was, of course, then the commander-in-chief. And when he heard that a, 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 a decorated uniform veteran, battlefield decorated, uh, had been beaten on his day of discharge in rural South Carolina, basically because of the color of his skin, he was outraged. And it sparked several actions by Truman. Literally the next day, he wrote a letter to the attorney general reporting the story of the blinding of Isaac Woodard and um, indicated to the attorney general it was time for federal action. And within three business days... Linwood Shaw was charged in the federal district court in South Carolina with the deprivation of the civil rights of Isaac Woodard. That case then gets tried before Judge Waring. An all-white jury acquits the police officer, obviously culpable police officer, in 28 minutes. Judge Waring is conscience-stricken by it. He realizes the failure of the system. He and his wife, who happened to be there for the trial, both had to basically stare into the abyss of Southern racism. And that look forever transformed both of them. And from then on, he was never the same. And he came home to Charleston, and there was nobody in the white community he could talk about. You could not talk about racial equality or questioning Jim Crow. That just wasn't, there wasn't space in the white South at the time. So he and his wife undertook a private study on race and justice, reading major books of that era together. And out of that, he went through clearly a major transformation. Other federal judges in the South in later years would do the same. But Waitus Waring was the first. He could travel that journey alone, and he paid a high price personally um, for that. So the, the unexampled courage is the story of all the folks who were part of that remarkable movement, many of them the litigants in front of him, as well as Thurgood Marshall, Isaac Woodard. It's, it's quite a story. Now, was that injustice, despite the acquittal, um, was there ever a reckoning for those individuals responsible? Never. They never. Um, Linwood Shaw, having been acquitted, no one, it was like a race from history. He went on to serve in various elected positions uh, in his home county, and um, no one in Batesburg seemed to remember ever that so this had happened. So neither civil nor criminal nor political Nothing. repercussions. Nothing. No, there, there was a civil suit against the bus company in right. In that era, it was very hard to sue a public officer today that would be done, but then there really wasn't. So there was never an accounting. Greyhound bus is still in the news for in the immigration situation that we're encountering. Well, this was a, a difficult situation. You know, one of the defenses in the civil suit against the, the uh, bus company was, you know, we didn't beat him. We had no idea this guy was going to do that. Right, and they um, have no idea that the ICE officials are going to... It's, it's a ripe conversation to have now, which is why we're really pleased to host you, Judge. Well, I'm delighted to be here. I, I will say that, you know, it's very interesting how my book seems to resonate to many people yeah. in many different ways. I, I kind of leave it 
to them to, to, to tell the lessons of history. We need to study history to know if we don't know our past, we can never avoid the mistakes. Was there the any back channel exchange between the president and the judge that you're aware of? Uh, president Trump, yes, there is. Um, after Judge Waring had issued a major voting rights decision, the case of Elmore versus Rice, it was the the case that allowed, um, that required uh, the South Carolina Democratic Party to open its primary to African-American voters. It was a huge voting rights victory. Uh, as a result of that, and Judge Waring's threat to, to, in, to incarcerate anyone who, who obstructed his order, um, uh, there was a famous uh, hearing where he told the, the executive committee men who were clearly trying to defy him that uh, a federal judge faced with contempt can impose a fine or incarceration. And he wanted those present to know there would be no fines. Well, after that, Judge Waring was the most reviled man in the White South because he was daring to stand up to the segregationists. And he needed security protection. And he had he required 24-hour U.S. Marshal Service. He had many threats on his life. He had a cross burned in his yard. He had bricks thrown through his living room window while he and his wife were present. In December of 1948, after Harry Truman had been reelected, was then the greatest political upset in American history, he invites Waitus Waring to the White House. Now, that sent a message to the White South. He, you know, of course, they had been a Dixiecrat, opponent uh, against him. He invites Waitus Waring to the White House. And the discussion opened with the president saying to the courageous judge, do you know the story of the Negro sergeant from South Carolina who was blinded? And Waring responded, Mr. President, I tried that case. Wow. And was he asking gullibly or did did he not really know? He didn't know. He did not know he had tried that case. He, it was a, that case had always resonated with Truman. Right. He, re, he would go back to that story many times to tell that story when he was discussing civil rights. I was going to ask you, Judge, did it have the, in, an equally potent resonance it for both men? And it seemed to be reciprocal. It, it, it was amazing that it would have the effect. There's a, there's a remarkable letter in the Truman Papers at the Truman Library in Independence, Missouri. It was a letter he wrote to a friend. He instructed the library not to release it until after his death. And the letter, a friend wrote Truman and said, you need to get, during the election campaign of 48, you need to get off this civil rights stuff. You're going to lose the South and you're going to lose the election. Let Eleanor Roosevelt handle that problem. And Truman writes his friend back, it was Ernie Roberts, dear Ernie. And he says, "Um, I'm going to tell you some things you don't know. He then told him the story of the blinding of Isaac Woodard. And he says, if I lose the election over this cause, this issue, it will have been for a good cause. Now, can you imagine a politician today saying that? Mm. You write, um, trying civil rights cases in southern federal courthouses in the 1940s was, to say the least, a challenging experience. Federal district judges presiding in the South were frequently hostile and almost always unreceptive to civil rights claims. That was the context in which pre- and post-Brown v. Board, if you watch that 57 interview, the judge and Dr. King are saying this was the seminal event, but they hadn't achieved the restoration of law and order as we ought to understand it today. In fact, at that time, they were in the throes of bombings and, um, you know, Emmett Till had happened just two years earlier. I mean, it was, it was, a, it was a hot war. In response to the attempt to desegregate schools and yes. the ongoing pursuit of equality. But what impact tangibly 
did the judge have in opening the eyes of any of his peers on the court or at least opening the system so that folks were not stymied because they were petitioning, they were challenging the status quo? What did he do and was any of it irreversible? Uh, was any of it indelible? Well, first of all, he wrote the great dissent in Briggs versus Elliott, which was the first federal court order challenging Plessy right. on its face, said it was all wrong, that it was legally, morally, and historically wrong, and that and he suggested in its place a rule that all government-mandated segregation was per se unconstitutional. That, that was Judge Waring's dissent right. in Briggs. That is the holding in Brown. It shows up three years later. So and Marshall it, really studied that. Oh, no question. They, 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 they had. They now had a new concept to overturn separate but equal. It was per se inequality. That shows up. That um, in 1948, when he, when he, when Judge Waring issued the decision in Elmore versus Rice, and in 1951, when he uh, issued the Great Dissent in Briggs, there was no one like him. There was not another Southern federal judge, but they would emerge. These were mostly Eisenhower appointees. Uh, who were sort of Southern Republicans. They, and a lot of them were Southern Republicans because they, they were dissenters from racial segregation. And there was Frank Johnson in Alabama, and there were a number of judges on the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. And yes, they all looked to the legacy of Judge Waring. There's no question he was a huge influence on that next generation. What was the human effect of Waring on judges in generations to come, to follow? Well, Judge Waring is a hero for judges. I have given the talk, which is basically this yeah. book, in front of my colleagues on many occasions. And um, there is a wonderful um, um, painting done by Jonathan Green, a renowned South Carolina artist, of the opening day of the trial of Briggs versus Elliott called Breath of Freedom, coming from a statement by Judge Waring that seeing this huge crowd come to this trial was like watching a Breath of Freedom. And that hangs, I would suspect, that that, um, that print hangs in at least 100 federal judges' offices. He has given them signed prints. And it's, so today, Judge Waring's legacy resonates among my colleagues. And many state court judges, I've been receiving letters from state court judges telling me they have read this uh, book and how inspired they are by it. So he, you know, there's a candle owned for Judge Waring in many courthouses this very day. You write, while Truman continued to mention civil rights in every State of the Union address for the remainder of his presidency and annually sent special civil rights messages to Congress, he turned his primary focus on civil rights to executive actions. Um, and we live in an age now where um, some fundamental provisions of civil rights, namely the Voting Rights Act, have been eroded. Um, and and I, I wonder how you view the current ju jurisprudence that would, in effect, roll back some of the advances that Truman championed. Well, and, I, and you know, I have this question asked, Mr. Hefner, a lot. Yeah. And I give basically the same response. I, I don't really comment on cases I've handled or cases I might handle. Right. Um, um, and I think everybody who might be a litigant before me is entitled to that. Sure. So I will leave to others... Um, to comment on this, I have had a fascinating response, a lot of different responses to the book about what the lessons they learned, and I think there are many lessons this remarkable story tells us, but I'll leave it to others to talk about the implications of those lessons. 
But you deal with the implications of those every lessons day, every on the day, bench. every day. So what speaks to you most in the way that you go about judging um, that is either reflected in in this history or is an effort to continue to seek the goals of uh, wearing? Well, let, let me say this. Every day, I and my colleagues, some 600 and some odd federal judges across the country and <clears throat> thousands of state judges, deal every day with issues about the rights of people in our court. Many of them are criminal defendants. They're po- they're, if you put it to a vote, no one would give them any rights. But we every day protect their right to, uh, to due process of law, to um, un- protection from unlawful searches and seizures. We enforce the rule of law every day. And if anything this book tells us is the, the power and the importance of holding the rule of law. And that is, um, um, and, and, you know, inspires me as a judge. It inspired me and the story to read, right, is the importance that separates us really from any other society out there. And certainly uh, the American ju- uh, jury system and the American uh, system of justice is the model for the rest of the world. It's an, it, it, so this story in 1946 uh, in many ways helps us on a path where we are today. It's not perfect. We got much, we got a lot of work to do. We do it every day. But the, the story, in my view, is the, the um, preeminence of the Constitution, the rule of law. What do you think that metamorphosis that you, that you describe um, means in everyday language for people? It means that you are not judged by the color of your skin, but by the content of your character in Of course, that's the, great, Do- that's the great Dr. King line. Right. Uh, yeah, but, but probably... But is, know, that, is that it's a really, It's really more than that, but that you are entitled uh, to the basic rights of mm-hmm. citizenship, which is the right to vote, right. untrammeled ballot, the right to a fair trial before a fair jury, a right to um, uh, equal justice in every aspect of life and equal opportunity. These, these are... Enduring principles, and you know we are uh, 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 an imperfect union, but we're you know we are aspiring, as Lincoln said, for a more perfect union. Right. Well, to me, I know you don't want to get into current case law. When you have a, a nominee for any circuit, federal court, any court, who questions the validity of Brown, I mean that's a pretty strong signal, alarm going off. If, if someone is not establishing the precedence that Marshall and Waring and others were, or nine members of the Supreme Court in 19, May 17, 1954, right? Right. Um, um, well, I'm not going to comment on judicial nominees. That's really out yeah, of my yeah. lane. But we need to have judges, and I think we do have judges committed to the rule of law. And certainly my colleagues are. Looking at the judge and Dr. King in that 1957 interview, what do you think um, they would hope for the judicial system? Um, Having seen a lot of progress and having seen some of their aspirations realized, um, would they be confident that the judicial system, along with the kind of civil disobedience that uh, King and others undertook. Is that still the formula for perfecting the union? Yeah, you know, um, the most, to me, the most fascinating part of that interview was 
um, your grandfather's questions to Dr. King about do you think now that you're in the courts, fighting in the courts, is it really consistent with that to go into the streets? Right. And Dr. King says they enhance each other. And Judge Waring butts in at one point and says, he calls him Luther King. He says, Luther King yeah. is absolutely right. You know, and, and so you can't, you've you got to have them all. And it's hard to know uh, what Dr. King would think today. It's hard to project. But he would be in the streets. There's just no question. He saw activism as a critical element in advancing the cause of justice. I think one of the most stunning things is that the judge is emphatically there with him. I mean, he, he does not question the strategy. No, he says, you know, you can't, it's one thing to announce the rights, he right. says, but unless people are willing to assert their rights, then nothing happens because right. the courts can't go out and, inf- and insert the rights for them, that people must stand up. There, there's a wonderful moment um, in, in the uh, trial of Briggs versus Elliott. Now, that's the first frontal attack on racial segregation in American history. And the history had been, prior to that time, civil rights trials in the South were very poorly attended because African Americans were, were fearful of appearing and the local white power structure would view them as questioning the racial status quo or, God forbid, were members of the NAACP. So these, these courtrooms were generally empty for these trials. Well, the opening day of that trial, as the sun rose in Charleston, African Americans lined Broad Street as far as the eye could see. And Thurgood Marshall walking to the courthouse and seeing this massive crowd turned to his assistant, Bob Carter, and said, we just won. And he says, Thurgood, what are you talking about? He says, they're not scared anymore. Hmm. So it was that sense of active, that willingness to stand up and not acquiesce. Jim Crow required acquiescence when you had to go to the back of the bus. If you didn't, you just refused. I will not go to the back of the bus. Or as Rosa Parks, I will not give up my seat. Then the whole system starts collapsing. You need the victim of Jim Crow to acquiesce. And popular sentiment, the public, um, evolved over time. When you have such a trauma like what happened to the sergeant, you know, that can accelerate the empathy and, and the factor of, you know, human to human understanding the tragedy um, and the dehumanization. You're, you're, you're absolutely right. You know, the, um, today, the name of Isaac Waters has been largely forgotten. He's been kind of lost to history. Hopefully this book will play um, some part in placing him and I think the pantheon of really important civil rights moments. Um, but he, um, um, at that time, in 1947, 46 and 47, he was on a national speaking tour describing what happened to him. He was one of the most important black men in America in the black community. He was a hero. He had stood up and survived. And the circumstances under which he had been blinded, in which he stood up and said, speak to me like I'm a man. I'm a man just like you. That resonated in a way that was really really powerful at the time. And, um, and I think that's um, uh, all these years later, um, uh, I think it resonates today. I, I will tell you, I, t- I tell the story in, my, in the book that I had read on the internet a letter from Julian Bond, the great civil rights leader, who said that the Isaac Woodard blinding ignited the modern civil rights movement. 
Well, I called him on the telephone. I never met him before. I called him on the telephone and I said, Mr. Bond, I'm working on a book on Isaac Woodard and I saw this letter on the internet. And he said, yeah, I wrote the letter. And I said, let me tell you about my research with the impact of this case on Judge Waring and President Truman. And he listened and he said, well, Judge Waring was a friend of my father's. His father was the president of Lincoln University. He says, he was a friend of my father's. I knew Judge Waring. Um, and I know the story of Judge of President Truman integrating the armed forces of the United States. But that's not why I said this about Isaac Woodard. And he began to describe to me the story of what he remembered as a child, of the blinding of Isaac Woodard, and specifically a photograph he had seen as a child of the blinded sergeant. It's in the book. As he described it to me, he began to weep openly on the telephone. He had to stop. And in a little embarrassed, he says, Judge, I, I, I apologize for my tears. But the truth was, he said, 70 years later, I still weep for that blinded sergeant. It was a powerful story that inspired really a generation of returning African-American veterans and others to stand up for their rights. So it was an important right. moment in American history. Let me do a last attempt here. Maybe you can give me a little sense of your judicial philosophy, which is open book. Yes. Or maybe you won't reveal it. But there was a time, and there still is a time, perhaps today, when that full emancipation would be viewed as activism. When you hear stories like that, and what Bond conveys is that realizing our humanity is not about judicial activism. It's about the realization of the Constitution and its aspirations. A living Constitution. And the declaration yes. of life, the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness for each and every citizen. And uh, so may, maybe you can just shed some light at the conclusion of this conversation now on the judicial philosophy Judge Waring espouses, now the judicial philosophy that Judge Gergel espouses in translating the, that human, raw human emotion into a constitution we can all get behind. Well, let, let me say this. You know, Judge Waring says there was a moment in his career in the white primary case where he knew his decision was going to be terribly unpopular. And he said, I had to make a decision whether I was going to be a defender of white supremacy or I was going to be a federal judge and decide the law. He picked the latter. And I will tell you that the strong culture of my colleagues today is we pick the latter. We stand up for the rule of law. Thank you, Judge. Pleasure to be here. And thanks to you in the audience. I hope you join us again next time for a thoughtful excursion into the world of ideas. Do check out that 1957 interview. Until then, keep an open mind. Please visit the Open Mind website at 13.org slash openmind to view this program online or to access over 1,500 other interviews. And do check us out on Twitter and Facebook at Open Mind TV for updates on future programming. Continuing production of The Open Mind has been made possible by grants from Ann Olnick, Joan Gans Cooney, Lawrence B. Benenson, 
the Engelson Family Foundation, Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, Joanne and Kenneth Wellner Foundation, and from the corporate community, Mutual of America.